0: We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke throughout uh, the Lenten season in our approach, uh, anticipating this Easter morning. And we've been focusing particularly on the meals Jesus shares in that Gospel and what takes place around the table of Jesus. And so today brings us to, to the last of those stories. And we'll see this. This account also ends at a table. But it starts with, I think, a question. It starts with a question about what do we do when we can't see Jesus? How do we respond to that dilemma when Jesus is not visible to us? Human sight, human perception is a fascinating thing to study. And there are those who argue, scientists who argue, that we are actually, in some cases, unable to see things when we don't have a category to put them in. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've heard about a study done by both um, visual scientists but also linguistic experts that point out that uh, in the earliest sort of languages, the, the most ancient versions of many languages across the world, there was, for a long period of time, no word for the color blue. It's true in the the oldest forms of Japanese, and the oldest forms of Greek, and Hebrew, and Hindi. There are words usually very early on to describe black and white, and then soon in those languages you find the word to describe the color red, and then green and yellow, but blue often came much, much later. One of the few exceptions to to this phenomenon were the Egyptians. They had a, a word for blue in their language much earlier than other civilizations. And some scientists believe that's partly what explains the fact that they produced or were able to find a method to produce blue dye much earlier than other parts of the world category for it, and then they began to to see it and, and reproduce it in the world around them. If you don't have a word, you don't have a concept, you don't have a space in your mind for something, do you really see it? Do you notice it? Can you respond to it? This morning in our call to worship, we read about a group of women who were among the very first human beings ever to encounter a peculiar experience. They witnessed an empty tomb. Right? A, a tomb that just days before contained the body of a friend, of a human being. And on Easter morning, it was empty. And that causes a crisis that we read about in all four of the Gospels. What do we do with the empty tomb? How do we interpret that? How do we make sense of it? What category do we put that piece of information into? And it's interesting, if you read through the Gospels, if you read Luke here, the the part we read at the start of the service, despite a message from the angels to these women saying, Jesus is not here, he's gone ahead of you to Galilee. He will appear there. Despite all that Jesus told his disciples during his his time on the earth when when he was teaching and leading them about his resurrection to come. With all that information, it's still clear that on Easter morning, in those first hours, nobody knows what to make of the empty tomb. They don't have that category yet. They're still catching up. So as we open to Luke 24, starting in verse 13, in just a moment, I want to follow Easter morning along into Easter afternoon, and I want to think about what do we do? How do we respond? What's available to us when we can't see Jesus? How do we make sense of this testimony about an empty tomb? Let me pray for us as we look into the Word of God. Lord Jesus, there is no one else like you. There is no other human life like yours. The testimony of the Scriptures, the testimony of the Gospels to us is beyond our categories for comprehension. But Jesus, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Lord, would you give my mouth grace to speak truth this morning? That the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be found pleasing in your sight, so that we might see you in a new way. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So again, this is Luke 24, verse 13. This is after the women go. They find the tomb empty. They come back and report that news to the disciples who also go to look into the tomb. But as of yet, there has been no appearance. No one's seen Jesus yet. Verse 13, Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. I think this is a story, an Easter story for us when we can't see Jesus. If you comb through the pages of the New Testament, it turns out there were actually quite a large number of people who had resurrection encounters, resurrection experiences with Jesus after Easter morning. Hundreds, the Gospels, testify to. Some of them we get in great detail. We get the, the appearance to Peter and James and Mary and Thomas. But Luke is particularly interested in this one. He chooses to to spill most of his ink, to give most of his energy in his Easter, his resurrection account, to this exchange. About two otherwise insignificant disciples. They don't come up again in Scripture. And there are two disciples who are walking out of Jerusalem on Easter morning. I wonder if I'm prone to believe that that Luke chooses this encounter because it's a resurrection experience that so many of us can relate to. There are many of us, I think, who have had trouble seeing and understanding Jesus. On Easter morning, these two guys are deep, ...in a funk. They are not in a good place. And as we look through the verses we've just come our way through... ...their their holy week has been like a roller coaster. There have been ups. They they entered the city. Jesus, this prophet, powerful in word and deed... ...is going to bring a kingdom to his people. And then there's the, the low... ...of witnessing their friend, their rabbi... Their teacher being betrayed, beaten, crucified, laid in a tomb. And so that, that roller coaster up and down has sort of finally gone off the rails. Verse 21 says sort of a, a summary of, of what I think they were feeling that morning. It says, we had hoped Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Notice, hope is now past tense. Right? That was before everything that's taken place. Up and down. And maybe even up again in the early hours of that morning, with all the confusion, the, the report of the women who had gone to the tomb, this angelic vision, Right, maybe they got their hopes up briefly and then the disciples go to look at the tomb and Jesus isn't there. No appearance, no resurrected body yet. Verse 24 concludes, no one had actually seen Jesus. And so what we have here are two men who are giving up. They're walking away on Easter morning. They're heading back to wherever their home is. And their discipleship, their faith, is moving into past tense now. How many of you have run into doubts, have run into discouragements, have been on those roller coaster kinds of experiences with God? That left you experiencing frustration, disappointment, maybe even anger as a result. And maybe you've been tempted to, to hang your head, to give up, to walk away. And I know I've had moments of like that, like that of my own, moments when, no matter how hard I sort of strained my spiritual eyes, I couldn't see. Jesus. Months where I couldn't feel Jesus' presence. I could hear my nagging doubts. I could perceive my own failures. I could observe the inconsistencies that we, we all experience in the church. But I had trouble seeing Jesus. And I think what makes this resurrection account so beautiful, so powerful, so compelling, is that as these two men are walking out of Jerusalem, turning their backs and walking away, verse 15 says, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. Jesus comes up next to them and we're told that he is unrecognizable in that moment. But as he he comes alongside them as a stranger on the road, he's compassionately curious to know what they've been through. And he begins to ask them questions. You know, we get it in in a four or five verse tidy little summary here. But again, this is a long walk. What is it? I think it says seven or eight miles to Emmaus. My guess is that Luke kind of is sparing us the details, but this was a, this was a venting session. Right? These guys had to work through and get off their chest all that they are feeling frustrated about. And Jesus, if you notice, quietly listens. He draws them out. He keeps asking questions. But once they've, they've been able to process all that and express all that, in verse 25, Jesus then begins to speak. It says that this stranger said to them, How foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer? these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And remember at this moment they don't recognize Jesus. He's just another traveler on the road but a traveler who's pushing back on the story ...they've been telling themselves that morning. Because he knows there is something in that story they're not seeing. They don't have a category for yet. It's been left out of their account. What Jesus takes issue with... ...is not how they're feeling. He doesn't say there's anything they should have done... ...differently as his disciples... What he takes issue with, what he pushes back against, is their reticence to hear what the scriptures already testify to about the Messiah. Jesus asks Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? That's the category they did not yet have. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things first and then enter into his glory? His own disciples, Jesus says, have been foolish, have been slow to believe what the prophets have said all along. What Jesus said on numerous occasions in his teaching, that he would be betrayed, that he would go up to Jerusalem and be handed over, that he would suffer these things. Why are they slow to believe? Well, I think probably like all of us, we're all slow to believe things we don't want to be true. And we don't want a Messiah who has to suffer. We don't think we want a crucified Jesus. Right those are not visions of a positive future in our estimation. But Jesus insists that it's not the scriptures that need to be changed. It's not reality that needs to be altered. It's my own vision of things that needs to be addressed. So in verse 27, Jesus takes them back into the Scriptures in a new way. And with this acknowledgement that maybe suffering is necessary, maybe suffering has been part of God's plan from the beginning. With that in mind, He goes all the way back with these two men. Through the books of Moses through the testimony of the prophets, helping them to see that if you start with a different set of assumptions, it's like putting on a a different set of lenses. And it's amazing how different everything else then starts to look. What if God chose to suffer himself? As part of his redemption plan. What if the Messiah, before he came into his kingdom, was willing to, to come and be the suffering servant Isaiah prophesies about? That would be a kind of God who could step in and know our disappointments, can know our doubts could experience our brokenness firsthand. And it could come alongside us on the road when we're ready to give up. Jesus says, what if that's been God's story all along and we've missed it? I think the application for us is if we are having trouble seeing Jesus, making sense of Jesus... One place Jesus calls us to come is to the story of the scriptures themselves. To come back to the testimony of God's word and how it speaks. How it perceives who we are. How we've been made. What it means that we've lost our way. And yet, that we have a God who relentlessly pursues us. So that we might come back to Jesus says the scriptures are vital in helping us see him. Let me urge you, if you haven't spent time in them, studied them, reviewed them, may this morning, may you hear the story that they tell of God's steadfast love for you personally. It's as this story is starting to come together in a new way for these two travelers that they realize they are almost to their destination. Right? They've, they've come to the end of the road. And in verse 28, says, can you jump the slide ahead for me, Sam? It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. And the day is almost over. So Jesus went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. You can move us ahead again. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up at once and they returned to Jerusalem. Again, up to this point, Jesus has been a stranger, a kind stranger to them, but he's not yet become a true friend. Because in the, in the Near East, in the culture that these men were a part of, right, friendship required trust, friendship required hospitality, and friendship always required food. Right? The people you were friends with were the people you ate with. And so not wanting their conversation to end, not wanting to, to lose track of, of this new an interesting person with, with this incredible perception of the scriptures. These these two men, these two disciples, urge him strongly in verse twenty-nine stay with us. We'll make a space for you at our table tonight. That's something we can do too, even when we're having trouble seeing Jesus. We can choose to open up our lives. To make space for him at our table. We can acknowledge that we don't come with all the answers, but we come hungry for something more. And notice, Jesus doesn't force himself into places he's not welcome. But he is warm to us when we make room for him. If you've been following along with our study in Luke these last few months, you'll noticed that there was a pattern to all of these Jesus' table stories. When Jesus comes to a meal, you can always expect two things. Something unusual, something surprising is going to happen at that meal. And secondly, there's going to be a moment of revelation. There's going to be an opportunity for someone at that meal to see things differently. This dinner in Emmaus. This Easter dinner is no exception. The surprise comes when Jesus sits down at the table. And again, he's still the roadside stranger in that moment. But as he sits down at the table, he picks up the bread. He assumes the role of the host rather than the guest. This is not... His room, not his lodging, not his table. But he takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks the bread. He offers it to these men. Almost as if this were a meal he'd prepared himself. And in verse 31, in that moment of surprise, it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized. Jesus. They could see Jesus. The one who was the prophet, powerful in word and deed. They could see the Jesus they had witnessed suffered and crucified. They now witnessed Jesus risen to new life. To walk along the road with them. To open the scriptures afresh to them break bread around the table that day. And in this incredible recovery of sight that lasts just for a few moments. It testifies, it speaks to them that their hope was not in vain. It's not past tense anymore. And so they actually run back to Jerusalem that same night that same Easter day, and they arrive there that evening to share their resurrection story with the other disciples. Pastor Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, goes so far as to say that God may have created the world just so that we could eat with Him. And he shares his own experience of of how meals have been Jesus' sightings in his own life. He says, quote, The Christian community often wears me out, winds me up, drives me crazy. But I also have moments where I look at my brothers and sisters, and I know the presence of the risen Christ with them. Moments when I see Christ incognito among the ragtag people sitting in my house. And then... He's gone again. You see it in our diversity. You see it when people's hearts burn as God's word is interpreted. You see it in the love people show to one another. When we gather around the table with our friends, with strangers, with brothers and sisters, with the word of God burning in our hearts, We're given a new category to make sense of this empty tomb. On this Easter morning, may your encounter with God's living word, may your fellowship with one another in the body of Christ today, may it give you eyes to see. He is risen. Hallelujah. Amen.